welcome to the 30th episode of Catch Up on Kids Mental Health. I'm Janet Morrison. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sinjazana Pruganich, who works with traumatized youth and their communities. Sinjazana was born in Serbia and came to Canada when the war broke out in 1991. Her organization, called Circle Point Wellness, is dedicated to teaching people about trauma and the ways in which trauma affects people's emotions and reactions. She's worked with child soldiers in Colombia, with people in the justice system in Canada, and she's assisted teachers, parents, and justice professionals to better understand the behavior of traumatized youth. Welcome, Sinjazana. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you work with children and youth in the justice system and what you mean by a care-based justice system. Yeah, absolutely. My work has changed a lot over the years from your traditional kind of youth justice worker running programs, you know, after school programs, running prevention programs, running gang exit programs working with youth one-on-one in kind of a counseling capacity to doing a lot of my own workshops and my own trainings where the youth would come in and learn around their emotions. They would learn around how different emotions feel in their body, how to respond to different emotions, how to kind of regulate themselves in highly stressful situations. Sometimes in community workshops that we did, there was even an opportunity to do some body work on each other where they would learn some massage techniques and from a practice that I practice, which is called shiatsu therapy, and it's based in traditional Chinese medicine. They will learn these techniques for relaxation and kind of work on each other's back or hands and feet and just kind of help their nervous systems regulate. With the youth who were inside the youth correctional facilities, obviously those things were not available. So we did a lot of self kind of massage and self touch and reconnecting with their own self in a way that's loving and trusting and feeling safe in their own bodies and safe around other people's bodies. So the work has really kind of shaped and and changed and really been informed by what the youth need um, and what they kind of express to me. And then for the second part of your question, what does it mean to have a care-based system? Really, in a nutshell, it's a justice system that does not perpetuate harm, that repairs harm, that does not cause re-traumatization, that supports communal healing and communal accountability, that doesn't punish as a way of resolving an issue, but actually empowers a person to heal through what might have been the root cause, to have that collective support from their community, from their family, and to take accountability in a way where there is opportunity for transformation rather than just punishment. Well, there's there's so much there. Let me first ask you, is there something about this particular group of children who lack an awareness of their emotions, lack an attunement to their own bodies? Is there some kind of a, a deficit or lack of education that they have have experienced? No, I wouldn't say that it's a lack of anything. What I would say is that a lot of the youth who are justice system involved experience a lot of systemic barriers and systemic oppression um, in their life. And consistently being in a state where your nervous system is feeling under threat and is feeling like it needs to survive changes how you respond to the environment, changes how your brain responds to the environment and even develops 
And so it's not that there's a lack of things, but there's no opportunity for them to not be in survival mode because so much of their life is consistently in survival mode. So some of those skills like emotional regulation is really hard to happen at the same time as the brain is trying to survive. So they're geared up for fight or flight most of the time. Most of the they're time. They're hypervigilant. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, and, and easily triggered to respond. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So in terms of the environments that they work in, tell me a little bit about your work with the system in order to kind of better facilitate or better understand the experience of these young people. Mm-hmm. So there's, I guess there will be two systems when talking about youth who are justice involved. One is the educational system with the schools, which oftentimes um, tend to label these youth as problematic. They're the youth who are being suspended, who are being expelled. So it's not necessarily a safe space for them. It's a space where they don't feel like they belong. It's a space where they don't feel like they can thrive. And then they're kind of funneled into what we call the school to prison pipeline. You know, when they're being expelled and there's nothing else to really do, it's so much easier to kind of get into activities that end up being involved in criminal behaviors and end up kind of going down the other route where we do have less youth facilities than before. But, you know, when I was doing the work, we had a lot more youth correctional facilities where basically are kind of like, adult ver- youth version of adult jail. So there's still the same idea of a jail or a prison, but for young people, which again are environments where one has to be oftentimes feeling like they're on threat. They're, you know, somebody is going to come at them physically, verbally, emotionally. You know, there's this authority that is seen, sees them as there to kind of punish them in the same way as in schools. There's this authority that they see as there to punish them. Right? So the relationships that they're in in these systems are oftentimes relationships where they don't have that sense of being seen or valued or cared for or, or feeling like they have an autonomy and, you know, in how they want to interact in this environment. They're kind of always just being funneled into here are the things you have to do because this is how we see you as displayed on you by your behaviors. So I can certainly see why it's an imperative that the environment changes well. You can't have children less hypervigilant, less uh, more relaxed, more receptive to a, a kinder environment when it doesn't exist. Absolutely. So what do you think has happened that's made for a greater realization among educational and, and justice environments that they that they're receptive to this this message? I think it's a mix of different things. I think that as a society, we're talking more about trauma and trauma-informed practices. So obviously, educators are looking at it. You know, there's been big studies like the adverse childhood effects studies that have come out. So there's just more of a, a push from the other kind of parts of society for people to start looking at this. I think that's one thing. And I think the other thing is that there's been more advocating from youth and from parents who are consistently seeing kind of the same issues happening and are just kind of fed up with it. So I think it's a mix of those two that are having educators and educated themselves being part of that advocacy as well. There's educators who keep seeing the same pattern and saying something has to change. So I think it's kind of a, a perfect timing of 
educators and parents and students advocating for themselves while all of this information is now coming more to surface around trauma and environment and learning and how the brain develops and trauma-informed pedagogies and learning styles. And so I think it just, we're lucky that they're kind of coming at the same time. Well, and of course, there's been a tremendous lack of success with the other approach that Mm -hmm. uh, I guess gets people to sit up and listen a little bit. Mm -hmm. Do you do workshops with parents and teachers as well? So currently I do workshops more with teachers at the post-secondary level with professors um, who are oftentimes working with still very young, in my opinion, young because they're just coming into, you know, undergrad, they're in their early 20s, some are still might even be like 19 depending so they're still their their brain is still developing. So much of our brain is developing, you know, up until our twenties. So it's not much different than working with like late high schooler age teachers. But I would love to do more work with you know, secondary schools, especially and you know earlier. It's just there's a lot of red tape with with getting into schools and doing these kind of trainings. But you know, I do know some amazing people who do a lot of things and they've been in there for a while. So I try and kind of support their work and come in when they need like an extra facilitator and stuff. Well, I'd like to, to understand a little bit more concretely and specifically what you, how you work with teachers at the post-secondary level, what kinds Mm. of things are you talking about or what kinds of things are you doing? Mm -hmm. Well, first we break down even what does trauma-informed mean? Because a lot of people kind of have a misunderstanding of what that means. And they think you might like, oh, my God, I have to now be a psychotherapist, <laughs> you know, which is no, you don't. Um, so we kind of just do a little bit of the brain science behind it. And how does it affect learning? And how does it affect memory? How does it affect, you know, social interaction? And all these different things that professors need to know because they want their students to be set up for learning, right? They, they want that information to be, be coming in in the best way and being translated into their life. So that's kind of the first part we do is a lot of that theory of kind of getting them, getting their brain and understanding what it is. And then it's about practice. So what does that look like for in the classroom when someone's triggered? What does it look like when you're bringing up a topic that is going to be triggering? What does it look like when you're writing your course syllabus and are you putting in the trigger warning? Are you, what does the description look like? How does that description going to be trauma informed? So when they read it ahead of time. You know, when you're leading a discussion, what does that look like? How do you support students in self-regulating and how do you support them in regulating with each other so that you don't take on this role of a therapist because that's not your role, right? And knowing when to refer out to mental health services in the school. So it's it's more of kind of that journey and process here. So we do, I'm a big fan of experiential type of training where we do case studies, scenarios, role plays, and kind of really like, apply the techniques that they would be able to do in the classroom would do it in the workshop so that they get to feel it in their body what it feels like to work through a trigger what it feels like to you know read something and have it come from a trauma-informed lens or write something and have it come from a trauma-informed lens so that's kind of what I do it's a bit of theory and then like full-on practice so I think what you're saying is that that by preparing them and informing them what they can expect and how they can respond. We're not talking about huge changes. And as you say, we're not talking about psychotherapy. We're talking about accommodating students who are easily dysregulated, easily triggered, so that they can be, be less easily triggered, that the triggers aren't there as often, and 
better better accommodated when those things occur. Yeah, it's basically three R's that I really like to do in these workshops. One is recognize. So they can recognize when somebody is being, you know, potentially triggered or that what might be traumatic, but they can like repair and respond. So how can they respond themselves, but also how can they set up the environment so the students can respond for themselves? How can there be a space for them to self-regulate or for them in a small group to regulate? And then the last one is just to prevent any re-traumatization. So knowing how do I, how do I you know, present a topic without re-traumatizing somebody about the topic and so on. So we kind of look at those three R's because I think that's more than enough to kind of explore within a classroom dynamic the different kind of tools and things that can be implemented so that it can flow because oftentimes these things aren't, you can't see them coming, you know, when someone triggers, you can't see it coming. So you have to kind of be able to recognize, respond, and try not to repeat the harm. Right? Well, and the students themselves can't predict and, and hmm. anticipate when, when these are going to be dysregulating and upsetting. Yeah. Are, are the, 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 the younger children that you've worked with in the past in the justice system, are they able to implement those kinds of strategies as well? Are they able to recognize what's going on in their bodies and to respond with deep breathing or some other strategy to, to, to help them? Are, are young people able to use those tools also? So the funny thing is the younger ages that I work with are more able to than the older ones because oh. they have had less time in needing to be in survival mode. So they're a little bit closer to that childlike state of being more connected to their emotions and being able to move through and they don't they don't get the theory as much the no. older the older folks kind of go oh that's interesting I never thought of it that way and you can see that like light bulb moment go off in their head but the 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 younger uh kids tend to a little bit more embody it they tend to feel it sooner in their bodies they tend to really settle into it faster and connect to that breathing faster because the older kids are like, oh, this is stupid. Oh, why am I doing this? This doesn't do anything. And it takes more sessions with them to actually start to get beyond their kind of mental reasoning as to why they shouldn't do this, <laughs> right? Right. Well, yeah. I guess the younger children live more in their bodies. They do, yeah. They have a little bit less reasons of why I shouldn't do this, a little bit less even pressure to, you know, do things or not do things, especially in group settings. Older youth might be like, "Well, I'm not gonna do that in front of my friends," you know. I'm not. Gonna. So there's a little bit of that dynamic that you have to break through a little bit. So it takes a little bit longer. While younger kids kind of just jump into it. So I guess the message here is: the younger you work with children, at the younger age, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so shapeable. <laughs> yeah. Are there things? Are there techniques or or routines uh, that? teachers of younger children could implement in the, the school? Certainly trauma is a, a big issue for young children as it is for teens. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if there are some suggestions you might have for teachers and even parents that they might implement to, to help their children regulate better. I think one of the biggest places we need to start as a society is teaching our kids about emotions and that it's okay to feel emotion. Oftentimes at home, it's not, you know, oh, why are you angry? You can't be angry. You don't cry. You know, you can't cry. You can't yell. You can't even be too excited. You're making too much ruckus, you know? So I think that it's okay to teach children 
the emotional wheel is a great way to start. You know, you can find the tools, as many of the tools about different kind of emotional wheels and, and being able to identify what emotion a person is feeling. And I've seen one, many teachers, especially at elementary level, do wonderful things such as like having the students as they come into the classroom, you know, pick the emotion on the wheel that they're feeling that day when they're coming in from recess and other things like that. So there's a lot of wonderful tools. There's a lot of wonderful tools for elementary schools for trauma-informed learning and a little bit less for, I find, middle school and, and uh, high school. And then you find, again, tools for post-secondary. So I think it's taking some of those things that you would do with children and transferring them to like middle school and high school would be beneficial. So even if it is like recognizing what we're feeling and it may seem childish, oh, let's identify what emotion we're feeling today. But that's the language that we need to start building the emotional resilience, emotional intelligence, emotional literacy, so that we can then be able to recognize when we're feeling something and choose how we want to respond. Because you can't choose how to respond to something if you don't even know what it is you're experiencing. So I think the first step is to really encourage students to recognize their emotions and to create space in whatever way that looks like in the classroom where, you know, it could be a journal check-in for the older kids. It could be a five minutes spent of like, we're going to do, you know, journaling for five minutes and you'll have probably more than half of the classroom resisted and doodle and do nothing, but that's okay. You keep, you keep reminding them and building the new habit of consistency. So that's other thing that's really important. It's not just, oh, we're going to just do this once and forget it, right? The, the brain needs a repetition in order to create new habits. So let's say it is five-minute journal at the beginning or end of class before you begin on whatever, some topic on how you're feeling today. That has to be every class then. It can't just be randomly here and there, right? If it is you know, touching what emotion you're feeling on the emotion wheel, that has to be every class until the children or the youth start to recognize this new language that they're not used to um, expressing because we don't teach enough our, our kids about emotions and what they're feeling and that it's safe to feel the full range of emotions, that it's okay to be angry, it's okay to be sad, it's okay to be happy, all of those different things. I, I think there is a tendency among adults to just assume that children know these things, that the children know how they feel and know how to regulate themselves. Uh, and I, I, as I, you know, listen to you, I, I'm, I'm aware of that a, a great deal in therapy, that there are a great many adults who also have no idea how to even yeah. label their emotions, let alone how to respond to them. That yeah. there's just, just this notion that we're supposed to suppress everything. Yeah. And uh, and be calm and uh, and civilized at all times, and then it doesn't work for people, and they break down or they explode or they they get physically ill, and then they wonder how this possibly could be. Yeah, I'm working with a young man right now who's incarcerated, and I asked him, you know, can you name a hundred emotions for me? And he was like, I don't think there is a hundred emotions. <laughs> I'm like, there's more than a hundred emotions. And he's like, I don't know, I only know five. <laughs> yes. And so it, that was such a a, a breakthrough moment for him to see that behind one emotion, there's 20 other ones and that he can be so many different things. He, he, he can, you know, experience his world in so many different ways. And then we started going back and looking at, well, when did you feel these emotions first? When do you remember first feeling anger, disappointment, or, you know, these different things. And you start building out these self-reflective points that are really important for someone to understand what, how they respond to stress, how they respond to trauma, how they respond to things. So it's a journey, but it starts with knowing what you're feeling. 
Well, I would imagine that that kind of work for a young man, such as you described, would be very, uh, not only enlightening, but would be a source of greater self-esteem to see himself mm-hmm. as a person who is not just an angry person. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm, I'm angry or I'm not angry. I'm aggressive or I'm not aggressive to understand the range and the richness of the things that he has uh, felt, but not not been able to express before. Yeah, exactly. And also to respond to how others see him, right? Because if others see him, oh, you're just an angry person, you can actually say, well, no, actually, I am feeling this and this and this because of this and this and this and this is and then he can advocate for what he needs too and it's easier for someone to provide you know what somebody needs when the other person advocates for it right but it's hard to advocate for yourself if you don't know what you need and you don't know what you need if you don't know what you feel right Right. It reminds me of, you know, all of the ways in which adults say to children all the time, use your words, use your words, use your words, but we don't give them the words to use. <laughs> they don't exactly. Have, yeah. They don't have the words to use. So well, many of us grew up in homes where, you know, it's not okay to be anything except what the parent needs you to be in that moment. Right. 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 Yeah. I need you to be quiet. I need you to be obedient. I need you to eat your dinner. I need you to go to yeah. bed. Now, now, because we're playing, I need you to get excited, but only until, you know, right. and, then, and then you need to stop immediately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When, I, when I've had enough. Yeah. 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 One more thing that I'm I'm curious about that, that you spoke to me uh, about earlier, when you were talking about uh, environments that tend to be transactional, and I, I wonder what you mean by that and what, what, what an alternative environment would kind of look like. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of our educational system is transactional. And what I mean by that is that it, there isn't a, this kind of sense of human connection. Like, let me see you, who you are, what do you need? You know, there isn't this empathy all the time. There's a bit of like, it's especially the higher up you go in education. I think, you know, just like the, the lower we go in education, there is more empathy and care and seeing each other. But the higher up, especially in post-secondary, it's kind of like, I'm here to get my grades, you're here to learn, and this is a transaction that we're doing, right? And and so that kind of relationship, you'll find it oftentimes reflected in the rest of our societies at work. You know, I'm here to produce what my boss needs, and he or she is here to pay me for that production of work, right? And so we have these transactional relationships, which there is things that have to be transactive between people you know like I I do have to get my grades at post-secondary and you have to teach me but can we apply a little bit more of a human element you know who is behind that like can we get a little bit more curious about the human and their experience and everything they bring to the table and that's the trauma-informed approach is you know knowing that a student's walking into the classroom with a whole life behind them right with a whole past behind them a whole present and a whole set of future dreams behind them and as well as the teacher and the professor and then these humans are meeting so what kind of quality of that interaction can it be that is a bit more supportive of you know their full self and so that is a little bit less becomes a little bit less transactional while still kind of fulfilling on the transactions that have to be completed right right Okay. Well, thank you for that. This has been a very uh, helpful and very informative uh, conversation, and I'm I'm very grateful to you for uh, engaging with me. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. My pleasure.
I think there was so much information that Snajana gave us that was very helpful. And I think there were two things in particular that I was struck by. The first is, of course, that the word trauma is so hackneyed and overused these days. It was really interesting and informative to have her talk about the significance of trauma and what that really means for children who have experienced ongoing, dysregulating, and very disturbing events in their lives, and how that affects their ability to to regulate themselves and to operate in various environments, particularly in the classroom. The other thing that I was uh, struck by, of course, was her emphasis on helping children to label and identify and express a whole range of emotions and how that is important for them to both express themselves and also to regulate themselves. And I was reminded when we had our conversation about depression, that that was one of the things that was also identified as being really important is to help children identify a range of negative emotions and to feel that they're okay, that we can feel whatever we need to feel and that there aren't bad feelings or good feelings. There's just a whole range of feelings that gives richness to to experience. That's it for this episode. I'm Janet Morrison. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.